0: Several decades, pursuing degrees and careers in STEM has been touted as the path to economic mobility and career stability. Working in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics has been perceived as a mark of success, both financially and socially. It has been thought that these workers are the ones who had the foresight to concentrate on what mattered, learning about the technology that could put them on a solid career footing for the labor market of the 21st century. But are these assumptions accurate, and do the data support them? Do women and minorities in STEM occupations do as well as white men? And how do community college degrees stack up against a bachelor's level education? To investigate these questions, my AEI colleague, Dan Cox, and I partnered with Reuters Ipsos on a survey designed to gain a greater understanding of the financial outcomes, barriers, and longevity of careers in STEM. The results were mixed. While many people reported general happiness with their choice to enter a STEM occupation, we found that many women and minorities leave STEM fields earlier than expected, and they feel they have significant obstacles to overcome in order to build a STEM career. AEI published a report on these findings detailing the outcomes of STEM careers, as well as the increasing need for soft skills in the hard sciences. To discuss our findings, I've been joined today by Dan, a research fellow in polling and public opinion here at AEI, and Kadeem Nore, a PhD candidate at Harvard University who has co-authored several important papers on the connection between skills and wages. Dan, Kadim, thank you for joining us today on Hardly Working. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. A couple co-laborers in the world of understanding labor and understanding work, and really delighted to have you here. I thought it'd be helpful if we started out this conversation just sort of addressing the theoretical basis for the survey. And I'll, I'll set that up just by explaining that I was really struck by a couple papers that, Kadim, you contributed to along with David Deming at Harvard University on the value of non-cognitive skills in the workforce. I'd like you to walk us through that research, why you did it, why you and David did it, what you've learned along the way, because I know that that's kind of, it's morphed a bit as you've come to a better understanding of the data. But tell us what you found in your research as to the value and place of non-cognitive skills and kind of what's happening in the STEM workforce. Sure.
1: So I think the place to start is actually a paper that I, though I love, I, I did not actually work on that David worked on, which is on the value of social
0: skills in the labor market of this conversation, we're going to use social skills and non-cognitive skills kind of interchangeably. Is that right or not?
1: Well, so I think the way to think about it is social skills are one of many non-cognitive skills. When people say non-cognitive skills in the discipline of economics that that I come from, typically what they mean is things that aren't very well measured by cognitive tests, IQ tests and sort of most achievement tests that we have in schools. And so that can, be, that can be things like hard work and, you know, conscientiousness, but social skills sort of narrows in on the interpersonal component. Do you do a good job of working in groups? Do you to do a good job of communicating? That kind of stuff. So the paper that sort of got me interested in this was David Deming's paper in the Quarterly Journal of Economics 2017. Basically, what he finds is that occupations that are social skill intensive so that require that people communicate, work in teams, that they've been growing quite rapidly in employment share since 2000, whereas occupations in some of the more technical and cognitive-intensive fields, STEM occupations, have been growing quite slowly in comparison, especially post-2000. And so that result was shocking, especially given the standard narrative that you hear in most periodicals, I think every year, there's like a New York Times piece that sort of talks about which majors earn the most and STEM jobs are usually near the top, that it sort of created this puzzle. Why is it the case that STEM jobs don't seem to be growing at the rate you'd expect given how positive people talk about them? This led us to a separate project, which looked at STEM more in particular. And and so we we redocumented this fact that STEM jobs aren't growing at a very fast rate, post 2000. But then we also noticed this fact, which was the returns to STEM diminish over the life cycle. And so what I mean by that is if you get a STEM degree and you go into a STEM occupation, you might make upwards of 50% more than people who go into other fields at the start of when you go into the labor markets around 23, just after college. But by the time you reach your mid-30s, that return goes down by roughly half. We go on to find that one thing that's pretty unique about STEM occupations and particularly applied occupations like computer science and engineering is that there are also occupations where the rate of skill change, so the rate at which new skills are being asked of people who work in those occupations and old skills are becoming obsolete is very high. And so we document that using the universe of online job postings, a data set that's collected by a company called Burning Glass. And it turns out that every occupation or almost every occupation that has a very fast rate of change in skills also exhibits this pattern of high relative earnings when you're young that diminish over the life cycle. And so, this led us to conclude a couple of things. It seems like some of these very technology-intensive occupations, because they're on the technological frontier, things are changing quite a bit. New programming languages are coming. There's a lot of innovation. And that's great. That's something that people love, innovation. And I think STEM workers contribute to that a lot. One of the costs is that in those fields that are really technology-intensive, the workers who happen to be caught in the middle of their career and without lots of educational opportunities, who don't know these new skills, have to retrain or ultimately oftentimes end up leaving the occupation. And so this is the story that we try and argue for in our paper that this seems to be what's explaining the declining returns to being in center of the life cycle.
0: Just to clarify that a bit, because earlier in your research, there was this sort of concerned that people were actually leaving STEM field. Mm -hmm. Has that turned out to be the case? As they age in the workforce, they kind of depart and go do something else. So from age
1: 25 to roughly age 45, you see an 18% reduction in the people who start in STEM versus leaving. So about 18% leave STEM occupations. So I think one thing that we didn't talk about in the earliest version of this is where exactly these people were going. And it turns out disproportionately they're going to non-STEM management occupations.
0: Outside of the STEM yes. world, they're no longer in programming. They've gone off to marketing or some other entirely different field is what you're saying.
1: Right. And disproportionately in management occupations in other fields. And this is something that I think has, at least people have speculated about for a while, oftentimes people will go into STEM when they're young and earn some money because there's a high premium. And then they'll leave for something that's a little bit more remunerative, that is like a management occupation. I think what's surprising is that even though a disproportionate number leave STEM and go into management occupations, there still is this depressed earnings premium for all STEM majors, which includes those people that leave, which means that the returns that they get from moving do not fully compensate for the, the losses that other people get when they stay. And so even though there is this sort of group of people who leave and go into management occupations, it's not the vast majority is really the way that I should put that.
0: Very interesting. I want to come back to that when we talk about the people who stay and kind of their attitudes appear to shift over time about their skill sets. So, Dan, you are our guru for all things related to public opinion polling and survey construction and all the technical side. You're not an expert in STEM. You're an expert in trying to get people to tell you what they're doing and why they're doing it. So, tell us how you and your team kind of put this survey together.
2: Yes. So, for everyone listening, I am not a labor economist. I am a pollster and I've done public opinion research of a variety of types over a number of years. And I will say that this is one of the most complex questionnaire design and instruments I've ever had the pleasure of working on. So, kudos to you, Brent.
0: A pleasure. Please. Pleasure. Underline <laughs> the word pleasure. There.
2: <laughs> so, I think the first decision that we had, and it was an important one that we, that we made, is just understanding the universe of folks that we wanted to talk to. A few years ago, the Pew Research Center did a survey of STEM workers, and we toyed around with the idea of, of doing a STEM worker survey, but for you know a couple of important reasons, we decided to do actually do a, a survey, people with STEM education backgrounds. For one, if we were only talking to STEM workers, we couldn't really understand and appreciate the views of people who left. because so we'd only be talking about people who are currently engaged in that field. And we really wanted to get a sense of who was leaving and why. So I think that makes the study a little bit different from, from other things that are out there. And the other thing is like, once we decided that this was a group that we wanted to talk to, we had to figure out how to identify them. So we worked with a great outfit called Ipsos. They run a probability-based panel, and that allows us to, to get a, a national representative sample of people with STEM education backgrounds, and we had a couple of different questions so that we could include people who had associate's degrees or bachelor's degrees or, or advanced degrees. And then we actually asked people, not only did you have a STEM background in terms of your education, and we gave some examples like computer science, biology, physics, information technology. And then we actually asked people what their degree was in, To make sure that no one got through that we didn't think should get through, and lo and behold, a few people did. So we removed some like nursing students and and other folks who don't fit the conventional definition. And so that's how how we did it. We had ended up with a sample of 1,400 folks. It was a really really interesting study that I am
0: still very excited to be a part of. So we've got this universe. We've got the theoretical basis of the of the Deming Norway Norway research on this, which is there's something going on in terms of both wages, skill decay and exits in the stem workforce that we're interested in and then you went out and you built the sample of people along with Reuters Ipsos to get us you know a nationally representative picture of people with stem degrees all the way from associates up to advanced degrees and why don't you walk us through a few of the high level findings what were the things the key items that we found. Because some of them were surprising and some of them were actually pretty encouraging in terms of the STEM workforce and its satisfaction.
2: Yeah. So one of the nice things about this this project is I came here, you know, with an absolute blank slate, having, you know, little experience or exposure to STEM other than my older brother who has a PhD in this stuff and, and works at Google now. So that's like the 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 extent of my connection to to STEM and workforce issues. So one of the really cool things was I got to actually learn a lot by being part of this this project. And we saw, you know, in the findings a a, some significant results that I think are were sort of in tune with what I thought and some stuff that I think contradicted at least my own expectations. So for instance, a large majority of STEM workers were were satisfied in their jobs. 95% in fact said that it would recommend STEM career to a young person. At the same time, there's significant concerns about feeling that you're not valued by employers in terms of being replaceable, feeling competition from other coworkers, And again, I think that a lot of it has to do with with building up skills as well, like that pressure to to always be learning and growing your skill set. And I I think I'm going to throw in an anecdote here, which I never get to do as a pollster. When my brother got his PhD at University of Michigan in, in computer science, went to Google, who was then hiring like crazy. This was back in 2005, he got there, and there. So he had been never been in the workforce, and he was like, I think approaching 30. And Google was at the time hiring like crazy, all these BAs and BSs. And he's like, these kids know way more than I did. I, I did a PhD, my focus like on AI. And he's like, they know so much more than I do. I, like even in the time when I started my PhD to end in my PhD, there's new things that came along that I was not exposed to that I had to learn. And so I think he felt that pretty viscerally that I've got to sort of stay on top of, of of this even though I'm just starting out in my career. He's still there. So obviously things worked out. But I think it, it goes to that broader point that that people in this field I think do face a lot of pressure to to adapt, to evolve, to grow their skill set. And so I think that's part of, of why we're seeing some of these discontinuities between people overall feeling satisfied, but then also Feeling some external pressure. The there are things I think were, were consistent with my expectations, anyway, as we saw a significant gender gap and a, and a race gap on some of these mm-hmm. things where you know women said they, they face more obstacles in STEM than other fields. African Americans were more likely to say that they faced obstacles as well. But really interesting, I was not expecting the education divide. Perhaps I should have, that associate degree holders. Were generally less satisfied than folks with higher uh, levels of education and one of the things I will sort of wildly speculate the survey didn't didn't probe this but to the extent that, that people in associates degrees are maybe being funneled into a stem track where they really didn't have as much interest in doing it so perhaps but like people are saying no oh, this is this is how you get ahead this is how you earn money and so I, I would be really interested and maybe sort of jumping down to the later part of our conversation but like in understanding better like yeah is it that that people are said this is the golden key to gainful employment? And then when they get there, like, this is not consistent with my, my expectations or, or what I wanted. I'm disappointed in terms of my earnings or the kind of work I'm doing. We had a really interesting question about whether people get a sense of identity from their work. And there's a huge gender gap where women are more likely to say, yes, I get a sense of identity from the work that I'm doing. This is among STEM workers. And then men were much less likely to believe that. So I'm wondering, yeah, whether there's some amount of folks who are in STEM, but not fully
0: bought into the career. I think that that's one of the more remarkable findings that I saw in it as well is just people having some level of buyer's remorse about their degree choices. And it got expressed as among STEM leavers, my interest changed. And I really wonder if that's true that interest changed or do people not really know what their interests were to begin with? And they were just taking these cues from media coverage and their families and people pressuring them. A degree in the sciences and particularly in technology is the golden ticket. And so go do that and you'll never have to worry about your job again. It reminds me of a... Since we were in the anecdote territory, a friend of mine who's an attorney said to me one time, you know, law school is a pie-eating contest. If you win, you get to eat more pie. I wonder if that's a little bit true of the STEM world as well, that we said, you know, do this because you're going to be successful if you do this, but guess what? You have to keep doing it. I wonder if that is what really people are expecting when they move into a STEM career ladder.
1: So I wanted to tie together a few things with one concept that isn't fully explored in our STEM paper, but I think draws, brings a lot of us together, which is specificity. So, and specifically, this how specific the skills you learn are. One thing that's really unique about STEM occupations, it turns out that it's the combination of learning really specific skills and being in an industry where those skills change that leads to issues. So, engineering and computer science in particular, they feed more than 50% of their graduates into engineering and CS jobs, which suggests that you learn something very specific. You learn how to be an engineer. You learn how to be a computer scientist if you get those degrees. If you look at other degrees, they're much more spaced out. So, even in the life sciences and the physical sciences and in biology, it's very spaced out. And in fact, in those other science categories, one, you don't see as much of a return decrease. In fact, the people in those science categories, they their returns increase pretty rapidly over the life cycle. But they don't go into any occupation in particular more than 10%, or no more than 10% of them go into any particular occupation. I wanted to highlight this because what you were saying about associates degrees versus BAs. My understanding about if you do science and you get an associate. Oftentimes, it's much more like vocational training where it's highly specific, where if you do science and you have a four-year college degree, you have more opportunities to gain a broader range of skills, which might then make it easier for you to either move up in STEM. So maybe you have some of these abilities to do management-type things in STEM because you're a little broader or give you better opportunities to be able to transition successfully. So, I I was wondering if perhaps that has something to do with the distinction between associates and people with higher degrees. If you have a more targeted, narrow, and shorter educational experience where you get very specific STEM degrees and not much else, I think it could contribute
0: to this quite a bit. That's a really important point, and it's something that has a direct connection to kind of policy-related issues because, you know, you've got you know, United States senators and presidential candidates and people walking around saying, forget about the philosophy degree and forget about four-year degrees generally because they're not a good investment. What we really need are people to focus on this direct connection between education and work. And education for its own sake with the positive externality of lots of skills and employment down the road, I worry about sort of the popular kind of meme that goes around, especially in conservative circles, actually, I have to say that, that four-year degrees are overrated and that what we really need to do is focus on vocational education. Vocational education is great, but this would suggest to us that in some ways it's limiting.
1: Can I respond to some of that? That's, yeah. I think this is such an important set of issues that you just brought up. So, one thing that you might ask is, what are the skills that seem to go out of style really quickly? The skills that disproportionately go out of style are technology-focused and specific. It's like a computer programming language. You could use a particular software. And in part, that's why STEM occupations face such a high rate of change. You could come back and ask, what are the skills that don't go out of style? A lot of those map pretty nicely to sort of traditional virtues, things like hard work, things like emotional intelligence, being empathetic. These are things that typically don't tend to go out of style. And I think this is an important thing to talk about, especially because when it comes to things like automation, there's a lot of work on sort of what kinds of job tasks are being automated away. Disproportionately, they're the kinds of things that we know how to make algorithms to do. It turns out that a lot of these more humane sort of virtue or character-oriented skills, we don't really know how to make technologies that replicate them. They're uniquely human. I think basically I'm trying to say, I think that there's a really important role for the humanities. And if we even go back to David Deming's paper, his 2017 paper, returns to the combination of social skills and, and cognitive abilities, those have increased the most. I'm not saying necessarily that some of these sort of more humanities-ish, more sort of social, non-cognitive characteristics are better completely. I'm, I'm just saying there's a role for them. And I, and I think in combination with some of these technology skills, they really, really flourish.
0: That's sort of where I've landed in all of this, too, even out, apart from our survey. But this idea that what people need is a broad, flexible skill set. For yes. The because the workforce is changing so rapidly, the demands of industry, automation, technology, and so on, to get too narrow too early means that you have less capacity to flex with those changes. Whereas if you get a balanced sort of portfolio of skills that includes technology, but it also includes communications. Mm-hmm. Teamwork, the ability to write, the ability to think critically, all of those things will like allow you to move both within a career track and between them. You have a broader kind of life experience. It's got more insight into how the rest of the world operates. And I think that was really, and Dan, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about this, but I think that was really demonstrated when you look at the life cycle of people who stay in the STEM workforce. And I don't have the numbers right here in front of me, but it was interesting when you ask younger workers how important, say, communication or management skills were, they weren't thinking very much about that. And that's partly just the life cycle, right? You're when you're new in the job or in a in a company, you're in the position of taking orders (laughs) and fulfilling directions rather than giving them and as you get older in the workforce you move up into more management type roles where the value of those skills goes way up and that was really seen i think really demonstrated in our data on the survey was it didn't show up much among younger workers as concern for management and communication skills but boy by the time you got to 45 People were really saying, yes, this is a key part of what I do, even within the STEM workforce, right? Those skills are just as much necessary there. So for me, it's like a cautionary tale for our people who are doing STEM education in this country that part of being a good STEM educator is teaching all of these softer, more humane skills, as you call them, so that your your students have that capacity, it's not just to get a job, but to build a career out of that job.
2: I'm going to make a couple of comments. One is, I think, related to the survey, and one going back to your previous conversation. Something else I think was really interesting in, in the poll was that we found that most STEM workers are working collaboratively. So, you know, ideas or images of like the lone, lonely programmer just like typing away in a dark room is not the reality for most STEM workers, at least that we found. And so, I think there's like, sense that I think some expectations that people have when they enter the field are different than once they sort of rubber hits the road, they sort of see the reality to it. And I think that's probably, you know, related to some people opting out. The other thing I think is really important, I just ran a survey recently of college students. And one of the things that we asked them was, you know, what are the most important priorities for your school to do? This is in the context of COVID and the folks are interested in, in online education. Not surprisingly, a lot of students are not overly interested in it. But what they are really interested in is guidance. They want help picking majors. They want help thinking about career options. The question is like, where are they getting that information? Are they getting it from you know, people who spend a lifetime in academia? No criticism of that. My whole family is in academia or has been. But I don't think those are the best people to I sometimes provide those, those answers about you know what are the skills that are necessary? What, what will employers value What's the best way to sort of set yourself up for a career? Because unlike, I think, my generation and previous generations that may have had a little more idealized version of what higher education should be, students now going in, I think because of the imminent you know, educational debt that, that a lot of them take on, are thinking about jobs, freshmen, sophomore years, they're thinking about lining up internships. And something that in my cohort, which was you know the aught early 2000s, I think we never really talked about, we never really prioritized. I didn't know anyone who went to the Career Counseling Center when I was at school. but may have said something about my circle of friends. But I think that's, that's really different. It's really changing that students are really wanting to have someone give them some guidance in terms of how to sort of think about, you know, how they should line themselves up for a future career and, you know, what's valuable. Any intervention needs to think about who, who these students are listening to, parents, friends, and find ways to, to convey that information from maybe from people in industry or others.
1: I think that that's an incredibly important point. And I think part of it, it goes back to something Brent said. We kind of don't have a great sense, as, at least as researchers, about what should you study if you want to insure yourself against the risk of occupational change. I think something that's a little bit unique about the period that we're in right now is that we're in a period where work is changing a lot. There's a lot of AI technology coming into the labor force that is changing work in particular. The only thing that experts can agree on is that work is going to change a lot. Exactly how it's going to change is somewhat up for debate. Exactly when it's going to change is up for debate. I always framed it as like, you know, it's a really big bummer that if a kid were to come to me who's a freshman and say, what should I choose, given the fact that there's going to be a lot of change coming up? And I'm like, you know, we don't know. That's not a study that has been done, and it's. I think that that's depressing. I can say a couple of things. I mean, I think certain things, conscientiousness, make sure you show up on time. But these are all things that it's like, I don't even really know how much you need college to get those skills, and I'm not sure what classes you take to get them either. So,
0: yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that that's a matrix of skills that gets laid down pretty early in life. It's usually if you've gotten to college and you're succeeding in college, you probably have them already. To some degree, because college is a challenging experience that requires some perseverance. I almost think that we need to like flip the question around and help kids to ask a different kind of question, which is not, how do I make myself relevant to the workforce? I think that's the wrong question because of all the uncertainties. And frankly, I think it's the wrong question because we're dealing with human beings that have their own principle of motion or principle of movement here. They have their own drives, their own interests. It'd be a far better question to ask people, both from a, you know, the standpoint of vindicating and and helping them to become the person that they are built to be, but also from a very practical standpoint, what do you want to do? What are you really rigged out to be? What do you enjoy? And those questions get shunted aside as being irrelevant. I think they're the most relevant questions in terms of building a successful life because I've told this story in a number of settings, but I'll tell it here. I needed some furniture moved to my house a couple of years ago and I put a, a notice out in Craigslist or something. And guy calls me up and says, Yeah, I'm, I'm home. It's Christmas time and you know, I'm home. And I, I, yeah, I'm interested in helping you. And so he came over and we started talking about his life and what he was doing. And He was going to a very prominent Northeast liberal arts school. And I said, oh, that's interesting. What are you majoring in? He said, I'm majoring in computer science. And then there was kind of a pause. And he said, and I'm minoring in philosophy. I said, that's a really interesting combination. And he said, well, to be honest, he said, I would major in philosophy, but my parents will only pay for a degree in computer science. And I thought, that story encapsulates so much of the struggle that today's students face. We all got scared with the meltdown in 2008 and 2009. And every middle class parent in America said, that's not going to be my kid at the Starbucks after they've gotten their degree. We're going to make sure that they get a degree in something that is connected to a career so that the parents don't have to worry about their kids coming back and living in their basement and failure to launch and all of that, and I think that that anxiety that we have sort of imposed on people on our children about their futures is what has created, in part, this pressure. And it goes back to that that thing that I just said: like, what are you built to do? If you're interested in philosophy, maybe you should be thinking about teaching. Maybe you should be thinking about something that that will provide you the psychic income to go along with the monetary income because as we know, happiness as it relates to money tops out pretty early in your career. For most people, like you get up to $70,000 a year and really the additional money beyond that is like, it's nice, everybody loves it, but it's it doesn't add much to satisfaction in career or in life. So anyway, that's kind of my sermon on this is that I just think we're pushing too many people into this domain, not because we think it's good for them, but because it reduces the likelihood that they're going to be a burden to us as parents later on.
1: Can I comment on that real quick? Sure. So, one thing that I think in our paper that maybe goes a little bit under the surface, but I think ultimately is true, the way we think about this sort of STEM and the fact that STEM, the returns go down over the life cycle, there are people who just really like STEM occupations there are people who really like to code. And part of the reason why you would expect to see people taking essentially earnings losses relative to maybe what they could do elsewhere, but not leaving is because they have some sort of a passion. Really, all I want to say, the earnings is only one facet. It happens to be what we can measure and so what we talk about in our paper, but it's not the only thing that matters, which I think is a big part of what you were just saying. The other thing that I think people don't realize is that so a degree like philosophy, philosophy majors actually score quite well on the GRE and they score quite well on the LSAT relative to other majors of people who take the LSAT. There are highly professional occupations that are willing to hire people who have the skill set that you develop in philosophy. I don't think people, somehow philosophy has become this like, You know this joke, like major, where it's like doesn't really mean anything, but it turns out the combination of reasoning logically and verbal fluency is like really important. (laughs) (laughs) And so, (laughs) and and it actually it it oftentimes surprises me when people use that as the example. I think that there are other disciplines where maybe you'd be it'd be easier to use as an example because it's not clear to me that you're getting exactly those skills. So I think some you know certain English departments. You can get through, and you could not necessarily learn how to reason super well, and you could read also a very like niche select group of books that aren't even necessarily representative of values and morals that end up helping you later in life. So that's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I think the how practically useful some of these skills are gets left out of the conversation. Did you
2: want to say something on that? Yeah, one, one additional thing. So. The older brother, the Googler went to U of M, his undergraduate was in English. And then yeah. he didn't know what to do with an English degree, so he went on and got a computer science degree.
0: How has he risen in the Google workforce? Oh, yeah.
2: He's, he's management now, so like <laughs> 200, 250 people work under him. So he doesn't yeah. do a lot of day-to-day coding. So the, the, the important skills that he uses are, yeah, the, these non-cognitive
0: skills. Right not cognitive skills always bothers me as a term because all, all of those skills are cognitive. <laughs> they all happen inside your head. But this idea that this capacity to kind of pull up a level in your thinking and be able to see more a, a broader picture that integrates a bunch of different domains, that's really what management is. If you are too narrow, it's it's just harder to get there if you're too focused on too narrow a piece of the work. So. When we got the results back, they were fascinating enough on their own. But then I made to go do a bunch of regression analyses. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of what you found in the data when you looked at narrower groups. And this is more of an extrapolation than it is sort of a, a straight data analysis. But I thought we found some interesting things there.
2: Yeah. So two of the key things that we're interested in that in terms of outcomes is what predicted whether someone would leave the field and what predicted personal satisfaction with their career choice in STEM so we ran two regression models our thinking going in was that the the things that we saw most strongly in the data was you know demographic factors most closely linked to this was gender education background and race or ethnicity so we thought those would all be predictive of whether someone stays in the field and their level of satisfaction with it. But after running the aggression, only two things were, were strongly correlated with the outcome. One was gender. So gender was, was significant. Women were predicted to be less personally satisfied and, and a higher probability of leaving. Again, not a huge surprise, but we controlled for a whole variety of different things, and it was still a powerful predictor. The other thing was education. After we controlled for these two and, and a bunch of the other factors, race and ethnic background played no role in decisions, at least in this data, on whether people chose to, to remain in the field or their personal level of satisfaction in STEM. So I think that that's pretty important. We thought, and we ran this a few different ways, race and ethnicity should be, we expected it to be part of the explanation because of the sort of differential results that we saw between people of color and white same workers, but it wasn't. So I think that was pretty important having an associate's degree or less was really significant in leaving. I think it was the most significant factor. And so, I think we would need to, to pay a lot more attention to education. And what is it makes the experience of an educational background of people with associate's degrees so different in terms of their outcomes than people with higher-level degrees, BAs, BSS, and beyond?
0: One of the things I thought I remember reading in in the survey is sort of this disparity and looking at the race, particularly the race question. Basically, when you asked white male STEM workers whether minorities in the workforce faced more, less, or the same number of obstacles, they said it's the same. Then when you ask the African American, Hispanic, and women if that was what they thought, they of course said, absolutely not. We face far more challenges in the workforce. I think that's really, it's really interesting. It's pretty troubling that there would be such a wide gap in perception. And I think it goes to some of what we've been hearing out of, particularly in the computer science world, of concerns about the homogenous nature of the field and how that influences the development of technology. If we're serious about you know, not winding up with algorithms that come up with some really extraordinarily obtuse kinds of analyses of data, those voices really have to be represented. And I I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on that or anything from the data that you want to reflect on, but I I found it really kind of concerning.
1: I want to add, it's not really, it's not data-driven per se, but it is sort of adding some economic reasoning to some of this, First, to the results that Dan found that race doesn't really seem to impact or be a predictor of whether or not, was it that whether or not you leave or whether or not you're unsatisfied?
2: In both models. So in both models. In both, yeah, yeah, both outcomes. It was, yeah, equally not likely to, and it's just one, so that's would yeah. be some one data set.
1: So the one thing that I want to say as a black guy with a physics undergrad degree, <laughs> I feel like, I maybe mean, I can talk about this somewhat intelligently. There's a selection process that happens. So the STEM pipeline for underrepresented minorities is widely known to be broken. Blacks and Hispanics make up a surprisingly low percentage of people in STEM occupations, especially in computer science occupations. But the ones who do make it in are unique in some ways, in the sense that you wouldn't necessarily expect them conditional on making it into STEM. To be more or less likely to leave, or at least the reasons why you would think that they're selected. It's interesting to think about that in combination with the results that Brent brought up, because oftentimes people who are able to thrive in that environment, even though they're underrepresented minorities, are really good at things like code switching. So they can be in an environment that's highly homogenous, very white, but they can do fine. They can, learn, they can learn to be fine in that environment, even if they have a very different cultural background, they become fluent sort of going back and forth. And so that can turn into internal struggles that aren't obvious to white people that are working with them. So I do think that this all sort of fits together
2: eventually nicely, given all of these things. I mean, one other thing. So when we think about the other outcome, right? So the fact that gender is still really significant, the Mm -hmm. experiences are very different than men. That number that we we found that people are giving for leaving, the reasons they give, the the top two interests that Brent mentioned earlier were, my interests have changed. And the second, which is mentioned by almost as many people, was family responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, This doesn't have to be children. It could be having elderly parents or or Mm -hmm. siblings or whatever, but most likely it's children. It makes sense that given our culture and sort of still uneven childcare responsibilities. And I think COVID-19 crisis has brought this out in a way that, you know, men are still not doing, and I say this as as a father, still not doing as much domestic labor as women. And I think for folks in a very demanding STEM field, it would absolutely be understandable that it would be a precipitating factor for people leaving or opting to a different career track. I certainly remember and again, this is not my field, stories of Amazon workers who in management, like C level sort of saying, hey, I'm, I'm opting out. The hours are ridiculous. The demands are ridiculous. I haven't seen my kids in a week because I get home at 9pm every, every day. And that's obviously all anecdotal. But I do think the culture at a lot of these high-level tech firms is, is not conducive
0: to, to family life based on you know an outsider's uh, perspective. The only thing I would layer on top of this and the why on the gender side that I think it's a problem, and I don't want to get into a stereotyping in saying this, because I think that there are men who can be very nurturing and women obviously can <laughs> be very nurturing. But women are the ones who make these decisions about what's best for the family. Like, I can't really devote myself to this job full time and be a good parent. So, more often than not, it's the mom who gives up career in order to go and and do the lion's share of child rearing, as you pointed out, Dan, the domestic labor that's required to keep a family going. That's an area that I think I'd like to explore more somehow in this is what happens to a workforce as influential as technology and particularly computer science when you don't have enough women in it and bringing that distinct perspective to the development of these incredibly powerful and influential tools that we're creating through advanced computer science. I mean, the motto in Silicon Valley, as I understand it, is Move fast and break things. And that's, that's sort of the ethos of the high-tech world. That is not the ethos of any mother I know. <laughs> Moms are like, be careful, Uh, uh, (laughs) and share things that we emphasize when we're trying to rear good kids. I think it would be interesting to just look at, you know, like, what are the implications of a workforce in which women are underrepresented in the decision-making and the development of technology? I want to thank you both for this hour that you've given me and us to kind of talk this through a little bit. We'll be publishing the report soon. We'll be putting this podcast out as kind of an explainer to go with the report, or at least something for people to reflect on as they read it. And I think that your comments, both from the standpoint of why is this important in terms of the future of the workforce and how we went about it, I think would be really valuable to people. Who are interested in this topic. So thanks again for coming on. And I, I really look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well It feels like you're hardly working.